Today's reading is Psalm 36 and can be found on page 563 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 36. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Continue to love those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, and if you don't know me very well, uh, my name's Nigel. I'm part of the preaching and leaders team here. And it's uh, my privilege to be here today. Um, we were fitting up the technology uh, a little earlier and um, Ed told me that uh, the battery on my microphone is good for an eight-hour sermon. So <laughs> sit back and make yourselves comfortable. <laughs> uh, there we are. Uh, as, um, as Sam said, we're in the middle of a, an August series where we're looking at a series of Psalms, Psalms 32 through to 41, and today we've reached Psalm 36. Um, if you've got, I think, the Pew Bible open in front of you, you'll see that it begins, it's entitled, uh, A Psalm of David, the Servant of the Lord. Uh, this is a kind of, probably a useless piece of information, but this is one of only two Psalms, the other one being Psalm 18, where David refers to himself as Servant of the Lord. David describes many of God's characteristics in this psalm, as we'll see in a few moments, but he classifies himself merely as God's servant. I wonder how we describe ourselves in relationship to God as we come to worship this morning. Are we his servant, his friend? Are we a disciple, a believer? Perhaps we're a skeptic. I wonder how we refer to our relationship with God. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, open our ears to hear. Open our minds to understand. Open our hearts to hear you speaking to us that we might be more like David, servants of the Lord who loves us passionately. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You could do worse than keep the page of your Bible open if you have it in front of you. Uh, although I think uh, Lucia is going to 
try and follow my convoluted instructions about what goes up on the screen, but there we go. The psalm breaks into a number of sections, and it begins by painting a huge contrast. It contrasts between the wicked person and between the wicked person and God himself. And in each case, as Sam has mentioned to us, David emphasizes a foundational characteristic, I'm calling it, a fundamental feature about each of those groups of people, about the wicked people and about God. Uh, You'll find it on page 563 if you need it. But uh, take a look at verse 1 to start with. Um, My notes here, it's entitled, Lost in Translation. Um, It's probably not lost in translation because I'd like to suggest to you that actually something is found in translation. I'm told here that the Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so, you know, I'm picking up other people's information here. But the Hebrew, particularly at the beginning of this psalm, is quite difficult to translate. I'm sure you're familiar with difficult translation. If you're anything like me, you can look back at school days when you sat in a French class or a Spanish class or some sort of class and you were given something to translate and there's 30 people in the class and you come up with 30 different translations because in my case, mine was always wrong because I probably hadn't listened to the previous week about how the verbs work or something. But translating languages can be difficult. And so... Here we have, if you've got the NIV open in front of you, which is the Pew Bible and what we've got up on the screen, uh, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. All right? So I have a message from God in my heart about the sinfulness of the wicked. Seems clear enough. But if some of you happen to be using the King James Version, which lots of people still like, I see a nod at the back of the congregation. The King James Version says, the transgression of the wicked speaks within my heart. So this is not God speaking now. This is actually the sin of the wicked speaking to me. The sin of others talks to me about something or other. It's a challenge or it convicts me what other people do. If, on the other hand, you've got the English Standard Version or the Amplified Version, which says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Okay, we're beginning to get confused now. God is speaking to my heart about their sin or their sin is actually speaking to my heart, or their sin is speaking to their heart. Well, which is it? Well, the answer is that it's difficult to translate because the Hebrew is difficult like that. But actually, thinking about it, I thought some of these things, they all speak to us about what's going on here. In case you're wondering why so many of our translations say different things, One of the principal reasons is that Hebrew has so many embedded meanings that, particularly Hebrew, Greek to some extent, has so many embedded meanings that different translators say, well, I think in this case, this emphasis is the one that's being used, and somebody else says the other emphasis. So we get different versions in English, but it's all there. What can we learn from this? God speaks 
to us about sin. Probably if you're a Christian for any period of time, or maybe even if you're not yet a Christian, you'll agree with that, that God speaks to us about sin. Whether he speaks to us in his word, the Bible, or whether he may speak to our consciences, there are times when God challenges us and says, this is not right, this is sin, you need to take notice of it. God speaks to us about sin. But sometimes people's sin speaks to us about sin. Other people's, what other people are doing, whether, I don't know, we were mentioning in prayers, people bringing people over in boats that are unsafe and they sink and they die. And we think these are wicked people who are doing this kind of thing. It speaks to us. We recognize something as being sinful, maybe gun crime, robbery, abuse, all sorts of things. But the very fact that we see the sin, we see the action happen, speaks to our hearts and says, teaches us that that thing is wrong. But also, wickedness sometimes speaks to the heart of the person who's doing it. Maybe speaks to them in, in a kind of a positive way, in a temptation. We've all had temptations come to us and say, just do that, it's okay. Nobody's going to find out. You know, it's not important. And we get sucked into it. Or perhaps sometimes the very acts that people do convict them of their sin. I've been visiting Belmarsh Prison on various occasions a few years ago now when I was part of a visiting team there. And there were plenty of guys there who said, I now realize what I did was wrong and it convicts me and I'm guilty. So God can speak to us about our sin The very act that people do can speak to us about sin and we get tempted to do sin or we get we see sin and we realize that we mustn't do it and we need to avoid it. But let's be careful here. People may be looking at us and seeing our sin and thinking that it says something to them about our faith says something to them about our relationship with God. How careful are we from time to time about what we do and what we say and how we act that displays to the world whether our relationship with God is a good one. Have we ever had the situation where somebody says, you did that and I thought you were a Christian? It's very challenging. What does our lifestyle say about our relationship with God. goes back to David and whether he calls himself a servant of God. Of course, Jesus warned us. Luke chapter 6, he says, don't judge and you will not be judged. Don't condemn and you will not be condemned. We're not looking at other people to condemn them, but we can learn something from it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Is God speaking to us? Yes, I think he is. Can we learn from what others do? Yes, I think we can. Can careful considerations of our own thoughts or actions speak to us as well? Yes, it can. So, What is it that we can learn about when God speaks to us or we learn things from other people? And I've called this in the first instance, on the one hand, 
and then on the other. And on the one hand, David here speaks about wickedness, verses 1 to 4. David learns about wickedness and the wicked, and he says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of wicked. And what is it that he learns? Excuse me. What is it that he learns from these people? He learns that there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the foundational characteristic of wicked people. They do not fear God. The primary reason why people do wicked things is that they don't fear God. Now this may be a literal fear. Literal fear, trepidation may be appropriate If we consider that God is a God who judges and God may come and judge us for the things that we do, perhaps being fearful is the appropriate thing. But again, this is one of these easily multi-translated sorts of words. To fear God might mean to have no reverence for him, no acceptance of God, no recognition of who God is, no respect for him. They think perhaps that there is no God. Well, if there's no God, it doesn't matter what I do. Because there is no God, he's not going to judge me. Or maybe they think perhaps there's a God, but he doesn't care. He doesn't worry about what I do. Or they themselves say, well, there may be a God and maybe he cares, but I don't care. Instead of God being central in their lives and in their thinking... They become their own center. They think about themselves all the time. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And how does this come out? Well, verse 2. Verse 2. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. They flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. When they think about themselves... They lower their estimation of God. God doesn't care. Doesn't, God doesn't mind. God's not important. And they raise their estimation of themselves. I'll do what I want. Thank you very much. They think of themselves more highly than they should. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much. And how do we see this? How is, how is this shown? Well, in verse 3, David says... The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Flattery is found in words, isn't it? Very often it's other people's words. If I'm flattered, it's usually because somebody said something nice about me. And I thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah, good. Thank you. But we're also quite capable of flattering ourselves, aren't we? Of telling ourselves that we're better than we seem to be. Better than we really are. That we know deep down that we are. We deceive ourselves with what we tell ourselves about ourselves. We tell ourselves perhaps that our sin is not important at all. Or maybe that our sins are not sins at all. Or perhaps 
What we do is too small to worry about. Well, I don't have to worry about that. That's not terribly important. It's not terribly critical. Or maybe we think that the things that we do will be excused. It'll be all right in the end. God's not going to hold that against me. Or we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, actually the things I do and the things I say, nobody will ever find out. I always do it in private. Nobody, nobody's going to discover it. How many famous people have there been in the papers just recently who've kind of thought that sort of thing? Or perhaps we think, on the other hand, that, well, the things that I do, they're not very good, but they're balanced by the good things I do. I'm a good guy, really. I, I, I do this and that, and I, I share my time, or I spend my money in good ways or whatever. It'll all balance out in the end. And instead of being wise about who we are and what we do, we stop being wise and we stop doing good. We find ourselves sucked more and more into a downward spiral. They have no fear of God before their eyes. They flatter themselves. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. David goes on, verse 4, even in their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Even on their beds they do evil. Even when they're relaxed, even when they're at home, even when they're as laid back as they possibly can be, their mind is still thinking of something evil to do. And the character of the wicked is shown in their planning, their habits, and their attractions. It's shown in their planning. They plot evil. They prepare for doing evil. I've been struck recently by a couple of cases. You will have seen, maybe on the news, the... Uh, the planning that went in via TikTok in order to get a crowd of rowdy youngsters uh, into Oxford Street and causing a lot of trouble. I was shocked, having just recently moved to Bexley Heath, to be told by my hairdresser yesterday, oh, by the way, don't go to Bexley Heath this afternoon. There's another one of those riots organised on TikTok in Bexley Heath. People plot these things. They plan them. They plan what to do and how to do it. And they're constantly inventing new schemes and new methods. We sometimes drift into doing something wrong by mistake or by an oversight. But David says these people are planning them. Their wickedness is shown in their planning. It's shown in their habits. David here says in verse 4, they commit themselves to a sinful course. It's a deliberate choice. An ongoing wrong. They decided which way they're going to go and they go it and they keep going. Their planning, their habits and their attractions, they do not reject what is wrong. They stay with it and love it. Sin is attractive. It is, really. If we haven't realized that before, we're in danger. Sin can be attractive. It draws us in. It gives us a measure of pleasure. And our attractions can lead us into the wrong places. So, on the one hand, the wicked has no reverence for God. 
They flatter and deceive themselves, habitually sin. They plan, they have, follow their habits, they go for the wrong attractions. What can we learn about this for ourselves? What can we learn about this for ourselves? Do we reverence and respect God? How would you describe yourself in that situation that we honor God and reverence him? Does it show in our lifestyle that we honor and respect God? How is our estimation of ourselves? Is it perhaps too high? Do we flatter ourselves about our life of faith and put on a face and a front to other people that makes us seem better than in fact we know we really are? Are we those who are wise in our lifestyle? Do we consider our lives carefully enough? Do we think through who we are and what we do and what we say? Do we choose actions wisely? And how committed are we to living life faithfully? Do our plans, our habits, the things that we allow to attract us to them, do they bring us closer to God or closer to doing things that we would regret? Does David's description of wicked people sometimes describe me and perhaps you somewhat too accurately at times? On the one hand, we've seen the wicked. And on the other hand, we see the goodness of God, verses 5 to 9, if you've still got it open. We've seen the character of the evil person and asked ourselves how it is that they're doing wrong. Now we see the character of God. And David begins by showing us the extent of God's character. David reaches for his best superlatives. Your love, O Lord, verse 5, this is, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. And your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, Lord. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light we see light. David pictures God's characteristics with the biggest, strongest things that he knows. The heavens above, the skies, the mountains, the oceans... He talks about his love going to everyone, that it's priceless, unfailing, a veritable feast, abundant, delightful, overflowing like a fountain. Perhaps you would have other superlatives you would use to describe God's love, but these are the big ones that David knows and sees. But, but what are these big characteristics of God? What are the big characteristics of God? Verse 5, God is faithful. 
Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. God is reliable, trustworthy. He keeps his promises, unlike the wicked people. Notice the contrast here. Verse 6, God is righteous. He is the standard of right and wrong. He always does what is right. God is just. His judgments, his decision-making is always true and correct. God preserves. He takes care of people and the animal kingdom. He has compassion on those he has made. Faithful, righteous, just, preserving. Verse 7, God is a refuge, a safe place where we can be secure in him under his protection, under the shadow of his wings. Verse 8, God is generous. We come, what we have comes from the generosity of God. God is a good giver and a giver of good. Verse 9, God is life's source. From him comes life itself in all its fullness, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness. And God is light. He is the one who reveals. He reveals himself and he reveals us to ourselves. He shows us the way. God is faithful, righteous, just, preserving, a refuge, generous, the source of life and the source of light. How can we sum up who God is? If you've been following it in the Bible, you've noticed I've missed over a couple of words. God is love. Your love, O Lord, reaches the heavens, verse 5. How priceless is your unfailing love, verse 7. God is love. The supreme characteristic of the wicked person is that they have no reverence for God. The supreme characteristic of the God that we worship is that God is love. Time and time again throughout the Bible, you'll find this expressed. Malachi reports Jesus, God as saying to, to his people, I have loved you. John, in his gospel, says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have everlasting life. God loved us so much that he gave us Jesus. He is the one who reconciles the wicked world on the one hand to the loving God on the other and brings them together because he himself is love. Are we those who trust and know the love of God, that God is for us, not against us? David concludes verses 10 and 12 with a prayer for that continued receiving of God's love and righteousness and for protection from the wicked and a foresight of the end of evil people. How are we going to conclude? Perhaps we can conclude this morning by asking ourselves humbly <clears throat> whether we are as good or as great as we think we are. 
Perhaps we can conclude this morning by setting ourselves to developing a renewed reverence, a new renewed respect for God himself and who he is. Perhaps we can conclude this morning with a renewed assurance that the love of God is for us and for everyone. If that's something that you're not sure about this morning, you can begin a relationship with him by asking him to show you his love. Perhaps you'd like to come and talk to some of us around who are maybe on the leadership team. If that's something that you want to talk about, we'd be happy to talk you through some of that. God is love. He loves you. He sent Jesus to be your savior. May we develop that renewed assurance and that renewed respect for God. May it be so for his name's sake. Amen.